A book by an historian from the Naval History and Heritage Command recalls a bizarre episode from a long-ago war. In the great battle for Okinawa in World War II, Japan resorted to suicide missions known as kamikaze. The book's title says it all, On the Verge of Breaking Down Completely, Surviving the Kamikaze Off Okinawa, 1945. Joining me now in studio is author Guy Nasuti. Mr. Nasuti, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And why this book now? I mean, is there anything left about World War II and the naval battles we don't know yet? (laughs) Well, I began this project mostly as a tribute to the sailors that served during World War II, and especially at the Battle of Okinawa. It originally came out of, uh, I wrote about eight articles for the 75th anniversary of the battle. And I wanted to pay tribute to the veterans, to the sailors that died. And I also wanted present-day sailors to just learn more about this incident in their history and take some inspiration from it. And maybe just for the younger listeners, since this is a nation that doesn't treasure its history quite enough sometimes, tell us the significance of the Battle of Okinawa and what exactly kamikaze was all about. Sure. Well, the kamikazes really resulted from Japan's desperation towards the end of the war as the Allied forces were encroaching upon the home islands of Japan. Kamikaze itself means divine wind. And the Japanese didn't really refer to themselves as kamikaze. The divine wind was something taken from uh, Kublai Khan had tried to invade the home islands of Japan back in the 16th century. And that didn't work out too well. His fleet was pretty much wiped out on two separate occasions by some typhoons. So to the Japanese, that became a very important aspect of their own history. The Japanese actually referred to uh, the kamikazes. They, they were organized into what became the Special Attack Corps. They actually referred to themselves as Tokotai, or just Toko. And the Battle of Okinawa itself became probably the fiercest battle of the war up until that time. And there were 10 separate operations that the kamikazes were involved in, flying hundreds of aircraft trying to fly into U.S. ships. And really, their whole goal was to destroy as many ships as as they could and get the United States to the bargaining table. Right. So the idea was these planes knew when they took off that their job was to crash the plane and themselves thereby into the funnel or into some part of the ship. So they were literally suicide missions intended that way. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I guess... Probably was the United States prepared, and what was the point of view from the ships to see such an astounding way of conducting warfare? Right. Well, the kamikazes had actually began in late October 1944 during the Battle of Leyte Gulf. The first ship sunk was the USS St. Lowe, which was an escort carrier at the Battle off Samar on October 25th of that year. So the Japanese had at first really sort of It was kind of a one aircraft, two aircraft at a time kind of thing. It was at Okinawa that you really see an organization, several kamikazes at a time, attacking the fleet and some of the smaller ships at the radar picket stations. Just were a ring around the island of Okinawa, and mostly manned by smaller ships such as destroyers and destroyer escorts. We're speaking with Guy Nasuti. He's an historian at the Naval History and Heritage Command and author of On the Verge of Breaking Down Completely. Explain that title for us. 
So that's a quote from a damage control officer, Lieutenant Bly, Raymond Bly. Um, of all names. Yeah, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, strangely enough. He was on board the USS Longshaw, which was a destroyer. Strangely enough, the Longshaw was not sunk by a kamikaze. What happened, though, was the ship had basically uh, beached itself on a reef, hit a reef, and got stuck. So while some of the men were trying to move ammunition forward of the ship and another ship was coming to their aid, they came under fire by a Japanese gun emplacement on the shore. And the Japanese weapon was sending shells into the ship and uh, killed several American sailors. And the ship eventually had to be scuttled and survivors picked up by some other ships. So when the after-action report came out, Bly was actually the senior surviving officer of the ship, and he had been the guy on watch, actually, when the ship hit the reef. So you could argue maybe he was trying to cover himself, but uh, what happened was he, in an addendum to the after-action report, he wrote something that basically blamed cruise exhaustion and everything that they had dealt with up to that time with the kamikazes constantly being on alert constantly being on guard, being at general quarters for hours at a time. And he wrote basically the the entire crew is on the verge of breaking down completely. Wow. And what were your sources for this book? Did you have some original logs and diaries and that kind of thing? Yeah, mostly um, I used after-action reports, war diaries. I used a lot of veteran history interviews from the Library of Congress. It has a great project called the Veterans History Project. And I would go online. This was all done during the pandemic. So I was working from home. I didn't have access to the archives, either National Archives or our archives at NHHC. So a lot of this was done just via my laptop at home. So I was uh, looking at the veteran interviews, looking for great quotes. And, and a lot of those are just great. You know, those little guys really can tell a great story. Uh, so there Are there any of, survivors of that battle available? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Still? Still. Not too many, unfortunately, but they're out there. All right. And in the larger sense, speaking as an historian of, mm -hmm. of naval history and so on, war doctrine, are there any lessons learned for contemporary sailors from the incident of the kamikaze in such a desperate battle where the losses were probably in that day more than, you know, all the losses ever mm -hmm. in the past 20 years or something? Sure. There were actually more American sailors killed onboard ships off Okinawa than there were army soldiers or marines killed on land at the time. Some 5,000 sailors killed and about the same number wounded. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. It was really a lot for them to overcome. They had to adapt tactics quickly and often because the Japanese were constantly changing up their tactics. They started attacking at night instead of just in the morning. They were flying in from low levels just over the ocean surface. You know, they would attack, sort of coordinate and attack at different directions. And some would fly in and then come up over the ship and, and come straight down. A lot of the kamikazes carried bombs. So they were really trying to just maximize what damage they could create. So the Navy really had to be up to snuff on damage control training, firefighting efforts, their medical triaging and sending uh, the horribly wounded and burned off ship as quickly as possible. And I think those are all lessons that our Navy today could take to heart and, and just keep in mind 
as they go about their own training for the future. Yeah, particularly relevant as we have two carriers now that are in potential harm's way in the Middle East. So you have to be prepared then to triage and to um, adapt. You're you're always in harm's way when, when you're out on deployment. Living on a Navy ship is dangerous just constantly. So you have to be aware. You have to be on your toes. You just keep doing your training and you'll be okay. Guy Nasuti is an historian of the Naval History and Heritage Command. He's also author of On the Verge of Breaking Down Completely, Surviving the Kamikaze off Okinawa in 1945. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the book at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.